Today's episode of the Nick Bob Podcast is brought to you by Pella Windows and Doors. It is officially the winter months. It's cold outside. But if you're feeling cold inside your house, it's time to talk to your local Pella, Omaha, and Lincoln expert about taking a closer look at your windows. You can save energy and stay warm with windows from Pella that are properly installed the patented Pella way by professionals using window and doors with the highest energy efficiency ratings in the industry from Energy Star. Check them out online, PellaOmaha.com. That's PellaOmaha.com. And the Nick Bob Podcast is brought to you by my good friends at Runza. Well, Temperature Tuesdays are officially back. An original Runza sandwich combo meal is a great deal every Tuesday in January and February where the coldest temperature in Runza land at 6 a.m. is the price you'll pay for an original Runza sandwich when you buy a medium fry and medium drink. Temperature Tuesday. Make sure you are taking advantage of it at Runza and tell them your pal Nick Baugh sent you. Okay, it is uh, it is New Year's Eve. It's a little after five o'clock here on uh, on December thirty first, and I, I I was thinking, you know what? I, I it's been a, it's been way too long since I've fired up a mailbag, and that's what I want to do for for you know however long this takes. It's going to be me, you, and your questions uh, with with a little end of the year stuff, with a few big picture things and a few specific things. I posted on Twitter. Uh, you know, you could leave your questions there. You could hit me uh, on my email, nick at nickbod.com. You ever got any thoughts or whatever, just hit me up, nick at nickbod.com. Got a whole bunch of questions. Really cool to to get all the interaction. I'm not going to be able to get to every single question, but I'm going to try to get to as many as I can. So let's get this thing cracking on a little mailbag edition of the podcast. Bill on Twitter. His question is, Nick, what the heck is wrong with Nebraska basketball? Oh boy, yeah. I mean, uh, last night got absolutely pulverized by Ohio State on the road in Columbus. I think now it's it's twenty straight conference losses for Fred Hoiberg's crew. Um, when you go back to last year, obviously. Uh, so it's, but with this this year, it's perplexing because man, they let's just be honest. Like they just aren't very good right now at all. Like there isn't one specific thing you can point to and be like, yeah, they're doing this well. They're, they're just they're not very good right now. They are they're struggling, and it's never just one thing. I see a, a variety of things right now at play. Um, you know, f- the, the first thing that stands out to me is you know they're they are not a very good three point shooting team that is trying to take a bunch of threes. That's a problem, right? Latman is ice cold. Thorir Thorbjarnarson is is struggling. I don't know what to make of Trevor Lakes, you know, the Division II transfer that just became eligible. I think Teddy Allen is a great is a good scorer, but I don't think he's a great pure shooter. And, you know, and nowadays basketball is hard when you aren't a good three-point shooting team or making a bunch of threes, but it's especially hard when that's a huge part of your identity. And the reality is the thing that's kind of perplexing is, you know, Fred Hoiberg, that's probably the beyond just pace. Three-point shooting is a big part of what he wants his program to identify with. And it's now been two teams that he's constructed that really just aren't very good shooting teams. And so some of it goes back to that, you know, like these guys just are not shooting the ball well. Um, you know, they're not getting great looks. I don't think their shot selection has been good by any stretch of the imagination. But at the end of the day, you know, they are getting some good, clean looks. The guys just are missing. So the first thing is a three-point line. The second thing to me is, I don't think Nebraska has a pure point guard. 
a pure point guard. Like, I don't think Delano Banton is a pure run-your-team type of point guard. Because this is going to sound weird. Just because you can handle the ball and pass a little bit doesn't necessarily mean you're a pure point guard, like a, a guy that can run the show. I look at Delano Banton as a nice secondary ball handler. But if he is your primary ball handler, your quarterback who's got the ball in his hands, making a lot of decisions, pushing it, all that stuff, I, I don't love it. I don't I don't love it. To me, be, Creighton fans, remember, remember Ronnie Harrell? Really talented kid. Very similar game to Delano Banton. But Ronnie Harrell could kind of like be that point forward and and be the point. In fact, in the NCAA tournament at against Rhode Island in the second half, he like took over a lot of the ball handling duties. But imagine, imagine handing the keys to the car to Ronnie Harrell and not Maurice Watson. You, or, or handing the keys to the car to Ronnie Harrell and not Austin Chapman. Or Ronnie Harrell and not Marcus Zagorowski. Right? It's a totally different look. Again, Ronnie Harrell as a secondary ball handler, pretty darn good. Same thing with Delano Banton, point forward, you know, a guy that can give you an unconventional look, like not bad. But if but if he has to be your your quarterback point guard, handle the ball for 40 minutes kind of a guy, I, I just don't he listen, he's not fast with the ball in transition. And I think in general, he plays kind of slow and methodical. And Nebraska wants to play fast. And, I, you know, Trey McGowan's, to me, is more of a scoring guard than he is a pure point guard. And for a fast-paced offense to flourish, you got to have a great point guard. And I don't think Nebraska has one right now on the roster. Essentially, I don't think Delano Banton's a good player. I think he's a good player. I just don't think he can be your, your Demetric Trice, Marcus Carr, guy that's got the Marcus Zegarowski, Colin Gillespie, you know, run your team. And for me, I said this on on BTN when I was on the call for the Nebraska-Michigan game. I don't think Nebraska's pace is anywhere close to what it needs to be. And it's weird because you look at like Nebraska's Ken Palm tempo numbers and they're pretty good, but I think it's a little deceiving because I think, I think Nebraska takes fast shots. I don't think they play fast if that makes sense. So the other thing beyond three-point shooting is point guard play. Um, the, the third thing I wrote down is they're still really vulnerable inside. They're still pretty vulnerable down there. Latman is a stretch four, having to play the five at times. You know, Big Ivan Woodrago is just, I mean, what? I mean, he's struggling still. The guy is still struggling. I mean, the guy shoots, the guy shoots 40% from the floor and he doesn't take a shot outside five feet. Like, I mean, come on, right? You know, Eduardo Andre is the big freshman. Just isn't quite ready. Maybe Derek Walker, who's now going to be eligible, uh, the Tennessee transfer, can help. He certainly got the the size for it. But that, but their vulnerability inside hurts them because there's a domino effect with that. They got to double uh, the post. They got to collapse to protect the paint, um, and. and it, which creates issues for them defensively where they're vulnerable in the three-point line. They're in closeouts. It puts a premium on communication. Who's rotating where? And the, the other thing is they don't have anyone they can just throw the ball inside to and get an easy basket or just play through in the post. They don't have anybody that can do that. 
Everything Nebraska has to get offensively is just hard right now. I mean, the, the speaking of that Nebraska-Michigan game, you know, like Teddy Allen had, I think it was 17 points in the first half, but it was 17 hard points. Like double clutch, reverse layup, step back, 22-footer, what like one-hand runner in traffic. Like it was 17 hard points. So Teddy Allen's their best bucket getter, but all his shots are tough shots. And that's where having someone inside would help. Just throw the ball in, see if he can score in the post or create, you know, draw help and spray it out, whatever. And then, you know, last thing I wrote down uh, is chemistry. Like, we said it last year, but one of the consequences of flipping the roster and bringing in a bunch of transfers is chemistry can suffer. And chemistry reveals itself in a variety of ways. You know, fighting in-game adversity, which this team has struggled with, being connected at both ends. You know, at times, it appears like Nebraska's five individuals out there and they're not one connected unit with one connected heartbeat, with one connected basketball soul. You don't share the ball great. You see some of the assist to made field goal numbers. And, you know, you just, the chemistry isn't quite there. You know, they don't have any shared experiences. They haven't gone through wars together that, you know, that where the trust is there. I mean, you look at a team like, not to always bring up Creighton, but you look at like, you, you know, when it, when it gets to be nut cutting time, Marcus Zagorowski and Mitch Ballock and, and Damian Jefferson and Christian Bishop and Denzel Honey can look at each other and say, let's fucking go. Right? Like, Hey, here we go. Hey, we we last year we had Seton Hall in our place to win the Big East title, and we closed them out. And rot, like, hey, last year we were at Villanova, and we found a way to win. Like, they can look at each other because they've gone through stuff and trust each other and band together. I've always said basketball is a, a a confidence and chemistry sport, and this Nebraska team lacks confidence, and I think they lack chemistry. And the thing that's hard is like, I don't want to, there's, I've, I've heard some people question Fred Hoiberg's blueprint and plan. And oh, I don't know if you can do the transfer thing in Nebraska. You can do the transfer thing, but it has to be the transfer thing in addition to some continuity, right? Like every, you're, you're a fool if you're not utilizing the transfer market in 2020 in college basketball, but at a place like Nebraska, stability matters. Let me repeat that. At a place like Nebraska, stability matters. And so I think in the midst of, of bringing in transfers and flipping rosters, all that stuff, like you got to have some, some core that is providing you some stability, some continuity. I could go on and on, but you, you, you get it. You see it like, I still think the individual pieces are more talented than they were last year, but I mean, it's hard because I don't think they're necessarily any closer to looking like what Fred Hoiberg wants them to look like, right? And so we'll see, unless something dramatic changes, this could be another long year for for Nebraska basketball because what's really, really challenging right now is the Big Ten's just a monster, right? Like, there is no – I mean, go look at the schedule for Nebraska. Like, show me the – the. oh, they're going to win that game. Show that to me. Northwestern? Oh, really? Team that beat Michigan State, beat Ohio State? Like, they got it going a little bit. Maryland? Oh, the team that went to Wisconsin and won? 
Minnesota, oh, the team with Marcus Carr, who's playing like a first-team All-American? Like, you just go down the list. It's like there are no there, there are no get-right games in the Big Ten, if that makes sense. So it's it's just a tough, tough deal. Okay, John on Twitter uh, tweets at me and says, while no one is surprised by Dane Altman's success at Oregon, are you at all surprised by the level of success he's seen since arriving there? Great question. Quick run-through. I mean, it's pretty amazing. It bears, you know, sometimes you got to say things out loud. Quick run-through what Dane Altman has done at Oregon. So he took Oregon to a Final Four in 2017. He's won the Pac-12 regular season title three times. He's won the Pac-12 tournament three times. And he's been the Pac-12 coach of the year three times. I mean, damn. And, you know, what's hard is I'm trying to think back to when Dana Altman took the job. If someone would have asked me, hey, do you think he's going to take Oregon to the Final Four? I I don't. I mean, that would have been hard. Like, I always thought he was capable of it. But would I have put my money on it? I mean, maybe not. I mean, very few people get to get to add that to their resume, right? Going to the Final Four. But I would say overall, I'm not surprised by what he's done. Because, listen, the guy's won everywhere he's been. Everywhere. He's been the coach of the year in four different conferences. The SOCON, the Big 8, the Missouri Valley, and the Pac-12. It's... It's one of the things that I always point to with Urban Meyer as like he's got to be on your Mount Rushmore of college football coaches because he did it in multiple places. That's not to take anything away from Nick Saban and what he built at Alabama, but he, I mean, he, he didn't have much success at Michigan State, right? Like he did it at Bama, which I mean, listen, he's created arguably the best college football dynasty ever at Bama, but like he did it there. This guy, Urban Meyer, did it at Utah, did it at Florida, did it at Ohio State. Like, that's the thing about Coach Altman. It's like, it's one thing to have success at one place. It's another thing to do it at four different spots, from Marshall to Kansas State to Creighton and now Oregon. He, I mean, he's an all-timer knocking on the door of the College Basketball Hall of Fame. Like, and I was really, really curious how he'd kind of, how, how he would build it up at Oregon when he took the job. Because he's a guy, and anybody that knows, he's, he, he's a guy that doesn't really like change, you know, like he's not a, he, he doesn't really change even to this day at Oregon. He's running all the same stuff and sets. He ran at Creighton 20 years ago. It's all the same. Like, so having played for him and coached under him for a year when I was a, a graduate assistant, I was kind of curious how he would adapt. Like, okay, is he going to, how is he going to evolve heading out to Oregon in the Pac-12? And he hasn't altered his system or his standards of what he demands. But what he's done is he's just gotten a superior level of athlete. That's the thing that stands out to me. Like he, I've said this about both Greg McDermott and Dane Altman. I think they're, they have a really, really good eye for talent, really good talent evaluators. And he's got a knack for spotting talent and talent that fits what he wants to do. And with the move up a level from the Valley to the Pac-12, he's just, he's gotten longer, more athletic guys. He likes dynamic combo scoring guards in the backcourt. And then he's really sold out to length everywhere else on, on, on the floor. And it's been amazing to watch him elevate his, his level of athlete, man. Like some guys, 
get a move up a level in their in their coaching profession and they and they try to change their system or we got to we, we got to do this different coach Allman didn't really change anything about his system he just changed the level of athlete within his system but the standards and expectations and bend your knees and simple plays and nose should a goal and like all that stuff that, like how they play is the exact same literally the exact same stuff I'm not exaggerating like right now I could I could go out and run all the plays that Oregon runs because it's the same plays and the same stuff that he ran 12, 13 years ago when I was out there playing for the guy. But it's just a different level of athlete out there, right? Instead of instead of me running two fade or palm, those are play call names, like it's Dylan Brooks, right? Instead of running middle for uh, Cavell Witter, it's middle for Peyton Pritchard. Like it's just, it's just different. But I've been so damn impressed, so impressed. Um, Andy on Twitter has a couple rapid fire ones here sticking with Creighton. He said, uh, he asked, what's one play from your playing days at Creighton you vividly remember executing and why? Man, I was, so I was, I, I wrote all these questions down. and was answering them on my flight home from Charlotte, calling a, a doing some biggie stuff out of the studios in Charlotte. Um, he got, I, I remember, I remember more so the plays I didn't make that would have been big ones. I know that's kind of weird. I, if I had to pick, as far as good ones, you know what's weird is I think the, uh, I think the this is kind of an interesting psychological exercise. When I read this question, I was thinking about it. The first thing that came to my mind was the first time Coach Altman praised me watching film with the team in front of the guys. Like, Anybody that's played knows that's a big moment. That's a big stick your chest out, like fill your pride bucket up kind of moment. Especially with Coach Altman had this way about him, like you just you wanted to make him, you wanted to please him, you wanted to make him proud of you. He 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 was a guy that didn't delve out compliments very much, and if he devoted any time in film to pointing something out that you did well, it meant a lot. And yeah, I, I just remember it was my junior year against Missouri State all week. We knew Missouri State was going to play a little bit of zone. He had talked about ball fakes and doing different things to get the ball to the short corner. We we worked on it all week, and in the game, I did it perfectly. Like I got to my spot, uh, but you know, two ball fakes hit Tolliver in the short corner, I believe, for a three point play, and he praised me, rewound it a couple of times, and I I, uh, I remember feeling like yeah, hell yeah. So. Listen, I could tell you about lobs I threw to Pion Stinnett or a three I made at the end of the St. Joe's game that was a big one to help us get to OT and win it. Like, But the first time I was ever praised in film by Dana Altman was a huge moment for me. It's a huge moment. But I, like I said, I sometimes think more so of the plays I didn't make. And the first one that came to my mind was my junior year in the NCAA tournament against Nevada. It was a 7-10 seated game and you know what's funny is I've never rewatched that game we lost in overtime and I just there's a couple of games in my career I just have no desire to ever watch again both my state I lost in the state championship game my in high school for two straight seasons my junior year and my senior year I'll never watch those two games uh this Nevada this Nevada NCAA tournament loss I don't want I have no desire to watch that game but you know, Nevada was good. They have JaVale McGee and Ramon Sessions and and two guys that play in the NBA. And you know, in that game, I don't even, I don't even like. I think I I didn't play a ton. I maybe played 10, 12 minutes or something like that. So my minutes were a little sporadic. And when that's the case, it's sometimes hard to stay aggressive. But I think it was sometime in the second half, towards the like maybe the eight or ten minute mark. It was a tight game. It was back and forth the whole time. 
And, you know, I hadn't taken a shot the whole game, the entire game. And so I'm not in a great flow, but I get a kick-ahead pass from Nate Funk, and I was kind of open. But it's hard when you've been sitting on the bench and you're not in a good, you're, you're not lathered up, you're not in the flow of the game, when all of a sudden, boom, you, you, get, a, you get a shot that was kind of open. And I turn the shot down. And a few plays later, I got taken out of the game and never came back in. And I always think about that shot. I can still like when I close my eyes, I can picture, I can picture where I was at on the court. I can picture what the basket looked like. Like I can picture it. And it's a shot. I'm sure all athletes have these kind of moments. Or a shot I wish I would have taken. Because if I, I mean, if I if I let that thing fly and I I swish it, maybe I'm in for more minutes down the stretch of the game, and. Maybe we win the game, and maybe I have that moment that I always personally dreamed of, of making a big play in the NCAA tournament. But I turned it down, and it kind of pisses me off because, you know, if you're going to go down, you want to go down swinging, right? Now, you don't want to play crazy and go out there and just jack shot, but, like, I was kind of open. I turned it down. That one still bothers me, that play. The second one is uh, senior year at Southern Illinois. College game day was there. You guys have heard, uh, you know, this, the the stories with, with that. I've told you the the if I told you I'm sure I've told you I'll tell you the Aaron Andrews story quick here so real quick with the Aaron Andrews story with with that game so year before that so this would have been 2007-2008 like in 05-06 I would help be an intern for ESPN in the College World Series so I'd be there for like two weeks and I'd be like taking the trash out one of my jobs was to clean the bases in between the games like I would literally be with like a brush scrubbing them and all that stuff but Aaron Andrews was working at ESPN at the time and of course, you know, I mean, I'm like 21 years old and I'm single and I also have broadcasting aspirations. You know, Aaron Andrews is a beautiful girl and I'm like, I'm going to go holler at Aaron Andrews, man. I'm going to do it. And so one day in the, in the, in like the ESPN tent, I just go, I go up to Aaron Andrews. I work up the courage. I say, hi, my name is Nick Baugh. I want to be in, I want to get into broadcasting. Just, you know, wanted to introduce myself and, you know, said something stupid. I bet I was fumbling on myself. And she was like, oh, okay, yeah, just, you know, reach out to me. And she, you know, she gave me her email. And I bet it was a fake email address or whatever because I emailed her and never heard back. But it, anyways, so that happens. Fast forward a year later, it's college game day. And Aaron Andrews is, you know, it's Billis Schulman, Aaron Andrews. And the whole time leading up to that game, I'm sitting there. I'm like, okay, is Aaron Andrews going to remember me? Like I'm going to shoot around the day of the game. The TV broadcast crew is always at shoot around and I'm going to the game and I'm like, going to shoot around. I'm like, is she going to remember me? Is she, I don't know if she's going to remember me. I'm not sure. And so I'm shooting at, at shoot around right? we get there at like 10 o'clock in the morning and I'm kind of keep my eye on the door uh, to the, to the gym and I'm shooting, I'm shooting and all of a sudden, boom, open the door opens and in walks Aaron Andrews. And I'm like, okay, here we go. Big moment. Aaron Andrews and I lock eyes and she lights up and she says, Nick. And right when that happens, Booker Woodfox fires a pass back at me because he's been rebounding for me. I'm looking at Aaron Andrews. Booker, his chest pass hits me dead square in the nose, knocks me over. I have, you know, when you hit the nose, you got like tears coming down and all that stuff. I am trying to play it cool and go and talk to Aaron Andrews. She's like, oh, my God, are you okay? And all that stuff. And Booker felt terrible. Was, to this day, it's the hardest I've ever seen Dana Altman laugh in my life. He was kind of – he was propped up on the scorer's table talking to Billis and Schulman, and he, like, fell off the scorer's table laughing. But so, so there you go. That's my Aaron Andrews story right there. That's uh, that's good. But anyways, so this game, though, um, 
It's a tie game late. It's a grinder. I mean, Jesus. It, it, <laughs> College game dad have been like, why did we do this game? This game. I think the final score was like 49-47. I mean, this thing was, oh boy. But late in the game, it's, it's like a tie game late. or We, we might have been up one. And Brian Mullins, who's now as a head coach at Southern Illinois, which is nuts, he drives baseline. He draws Dane Watts over uh, for help. And I needed to rotate to help the helper, and I was a touch late. And Brian Mullen squeezed a pass into Matt, into Shaw, and he scored. And I, I I remember after the game at asking Coach Altman about that play uh, at the bus. We were standing outside, and I was like, I, I was like, it was my rotation. I should have got to it. He was like, Ah, would have been a would have been a hell of a play if he'd have got there. But he patted me on the back and said, "You played hard, bud." And but it was another big moment, college game day, where. I, it, I could have made a big play rotating and knocking the ball away, but I, I didn't make it. I didn't make it. One more before I cry about all the plays I didn't make in college, but last game of my career at Florida in the NIT. Uh, people got to remember, Florida's coming off back-to-back national championships, so we're getting to play Florida. We're pumped, right? First play of the game, your boy gets the ball. I come off a ball screen on the side. I'm like, shit, let's go to the rack, right? So I go to the rack hard. I get all the way to the rim, and I get hit. Some guy slides under me, and I get hit, and I make the layup. It should have been an and one, but instead, the ref makes a horrible car call, gives me a charge. So instead of scoring on the first play and getting rolling, I get a charge, and we end up getting routed. We lost by like 25, but we got destroyed in that game. That one always bothers me because it was the last game I ever played it. Right there. There you go. All right, enough of uh, memory lane for, for me. Uh, next question. God, I didn't write down who asked this question. Um, see if I can pull it up quick. So I want to make sure I give some people some, some love here. Uh, oh, this is still, uh, Andy with his rapid fire. He says, uh, how many miles did you ride on your new bike in 2020? So yeah, good memory here. I, cause I've been telling me about this. Like I, uh, so I got a new bike in April, right? When the pandemic was kind of getting started, we were about a couple weeks in, and one of the big reasons I got a bike is I wanted to put a trailer on it and haul my four-year-old daughter around, and which I did, which was which was I did it a ton. But without question, I, I was talking to to I think my parents about this the other day. My the my fa- the it's the best purchase I've made in years is this bike. Like I rode that thing pretty much every single day for all of the end of the spring, all summer, and all fall. And I, so I can't give you an exact number on the miles, but it was a lot. And I just got to tell you, getting on that bike, going for a ride was an absolute escape for me, right? Like, obviously, emotions, stress, everything's been high with with COVID and all that stuff. But somebody, when I get on that bike, it was just like everything was cool. Like, I was just like, all right, I feel I've, I, when I think of the pandemic and I think of quarantined and all that stuff, like... I, I think about, I'll always, rem- I'll think about my bike. Like I really think 25, 30 years from now when people go like, Hey, coronavirus pandemic, what were you? like, I'm going to think of how I dealt with it was getting on my bike and just riding. So it was, it was heaven sent for me. Heaven sent. Last question of the rapid fire is uh, best animated Disney movie to watch with kids during quarantine. So man, we went through a bunch, right? We had a, uh, we had a Toy Story Marathon week. We watched them all uh, each night, which was exciting. We were all excited for Trolls 2 to come out, but I thought Trolls 2 stunk. Trolls 1 was good, but Trolls 2 stuck. Uh, haven't watched Soul yet. I'm excited about that one. But I would say 
This isn't a new movie, but I, finally watching Inside Out with my four-year-old daughter was fun. That was uh, that probably be the, the choice for me. Okay, Matt on Twitter. Uh, he says, nearly two decades later, and I'm still upset about the, fire, the Solich firing. Where do you think this program would be if we never fired Solich? And this, this, when I'll kind of, this kind of answers another question I got about Nebraska being cursed and maybe what started the curse and all that stuff. You can tell Nebraska fans are in a tough frame of mind right now. But it, I think if the program is cursed, like let's say we believe in curses and all that stuff, which I don't know if I do or don't. I, I'm, I would say the jury's out on that. But if if the program is cursed, I think the curse started the day Nebraska fired Frank Solich. No question about it. Of all the bad decisions and mistakes and missteps this program has made over the course of two, the last two decades, firing Frank Solis takes the cake. And what's weird is it, it's, it's less about Frank Solich as the coach and more about the tearing apart the system and culture and foundation and formula and identity that was Nebraska football for 30 years. Like, Nebraska had a winning formula 100% in place. And Nebraska elected to sabotage that formula. And let's be honest, the, the program's never fully recovered from that. Nebraska's football program was, if you think about it, was, was a more of a, it was more of a delicate thing than you think. It had a very specific, detailed way that they operated, and it was almost like a tightrope act. And they had mastered that tightrope act, and they were flying high and had it rolling, but the moment you changed courses and tried to go in a different direction, you were going tumbling down. And that's what's kind of happened. And listen, I love Frank Solich, but again, I, th- I thought it was – it was more about the destruction of the winning formula they had in place than actually Frank the coach being fired, if that makes sense. And that's not to be disrespectful to Frank necessarily, but it was like Nebraska was a machine. It was a machine. And Frank happened to be behind the wheel at the time. He was doing a good job, but I think it's more about the the mechanism that was the entire machine. Because, I mean, Nebraska was the dominant program for for sure the 90s, but you could also say they were the dominant program from 1970 to 2000, to 2000, 2003, 2004. Five national titles, multiple Heisman Trophy winners, tons of conference titles, no real steps back throughout that entire 30, 40-year period, constant domination, and the formula was in place. And Nebraska elected to throw it all away still to this day is mind-blowing so you know the second part of the question where do I think this program would be if it never fired Solich I mean it'd be in a better place I don't know where I don't know what that looks like but it'd be in a better place I don't know why it couldn't still be at the very least Wisconsin I mean in some ways Wisconsin took they they broke into Nebraska's (laughs) Barry Alvarez just went to the copier, photocopied Nebraska's blueprint, and took it to Madison, Wisconsin. I mean, in a lot of ways, it's what he did. So I think at the very least, it'd be Wisconsin. Now, I think I'm I'm not naive to all the different things that have altered in the landscape of college football. Prop 48 going away, the TV uh, explosion changing things, you know, the 
you know, population shift down south, all that stuff. Like, I'm not, all those things would have hurt Nebraska. So I don't think they would have continued, you know, it wouldn't have been the 90s continuing in the 2000s and 2010s. But I think it would be in a hell of a better, a hell of a lot better place than it is right now. And it could be at the very least Wisconsin, which is pretty damn good. Pretty damn good. Sticking on, uh, on, on Nebraska football, David via email, uh, one of the questions he asked was, biggest problem with corn football other than special teams? I've never heard anyone refer to Nebraska football as corn football, but biggest problem with Nebraska football other than special teams? Um, well, what's interesting is that, yeah, I wouldn't put special teams as the biggest problem, but it's in the, when you're writing down problems, it's, it gets listed pretty quick, top four or five problems. And the special team, real quick, the special teams thing is maddening because you know, it, it was atrocious in 2019 in year two. Like it was atrocious a year ago. So Frost knew it, had to address it, and it probably got worse in 2020. And my guess is, I think Scott Frost thought all the issues with special teams in 2019 centered around their poor field goal kicking, and he probably thought if uh, you know if I if we fix that we fix special teams, which you know he he did fix the kicking situation. Connor Culp was an All Big Ten kicker, but that didn't fix all of special teams at all. Again, I thought it got worse when you take about when you look at punt team, punt return, kickoff, kickoff return. So that was a mistake on his part. But I was thinking more about this. Like I wonder if I wonder if Frost's offenses at Oregon and Central Florida were always so good that he could kind of get away with special teams blunders and mistakes. You know, like scoring 40 points per game solves and covers up for a lot of issues. Let's take a quick break to talk to you about my longtime pals and loyal supporters of the podcast, Pella Windows and Doors. You know, Pella has a window type for every home and every budget. And you might know Pella for its award-winning wood windows, but did you know that Pella also has a complete line of industry-leading patented fiberglass and vinyl windows? Pella's fiberglass windows use a patented Duracast material, more durable than aluminum or vinyl made from a composite material used in the aerospace industry for its strength, durability, and temperature resistance. It's big time right there. And Pella's vinyl window series offer all the features that make it one of the most energy-efficient windows on the market with the same value and style you've come to expect from all Pella products with outstanding structural integrity. Built from multi-chambered, fully welded frames and sashes, Pella's vinyl windows assure a quieter, more comfortable home. Bottom line, Pella's vinyl and fiberglass windows are really, really cool. Check them out online, PellaOmaha.com. That's PellaOmaha.com. And while we're here, let's talk about my good friends at Runza. Got another super secret menu item not a lot of people know about. My friends at Runza are hooking me up, and I'm going to let you in on it. This one's just, uh, you know, this one's near and dear to my heart because it's a twist on the best fries on earth. Runza's Crinkle Fries. It's Runza's Chili Cheese Fries. That's some legendary Runza Crinkle Fries topped with their homemade chili and cheddar cheese sauce. Let me say that again in case some of you passed out just thinking about it. Legendary Runza Crinkle Fries. Homemade chili, cheddar cheese sauce. Oh, my goodness. It's a side that eats like a meal. So there you go. Another super secret menu item exclusively for Nick Bob Podcast listeners. So stop in, order the chili cheese fries and runza. And while you're there, I'll tell them Nick Bob sent you. Okay, back to the podcast. Like having a crappy 
punt return team or punt team or kickoff return. Like, it's probably not as big a deal when you're hanging 47 on people. But when you're having a hard time getting to 24 points, it becomes a big problem. And in a league like the Big Ten that's a field position, detailed-oriented conference, it's a big problem. And the special teams has to get addressed. Because what's here, what's interesting is one of my main takeaways in watching these old Husker football games that Bo and I did in our Husker Classic Recaps series that we're going to continue to do here, we'll, we'll ramp it back up maybe in a couple of weeks or a month or something like that, uh, watching these classic games, one of the biggest things that stands out to me when you watch, whether it's the, you know, the 79 Oklahoma game, the 83 Orange Bowl against Miami, the 97 Missouri game, the 94 Colorado game, the 94 Miami National Championship game, one of the things that stands out to me is special teams. And how much Nebraska just owned field position every game. Especially like that 94 Colorado game. Even the, I'm telling you guys, go watch the 94 Miami National Championship game. Darren Erstad was penning Miami inside the 15 and 10 all game. He was so important. It makes a huge difference. So certainly that has to get fixed. But to answer the, the question, you know, it's funny, and this is why sometimes it's nice to, when the season ends, to kind of like take a deep breath, let the dust settle a little bit. Right when the Rutgers game ended, or even right when the Minnesota game ended, I would have said, you know, if someone, you asked me this, biggest issue for Nebraska football, I'd have said quarterback. It's quarterback. It's quarterback. Got to figure out the quarterback spot. It's quarterback. And now I'm not so sure. Like, I still don't, don't get me wrong, I still don't feel great about that spot for Nebraska. I don't think Luke McCaffrey is a long-term answer at quarterback. I think he's got some some shortcomings. Um, you know, Martinez has been really, really up and down, and bottom line, they haven't won a lot with him. So, you know, I don't feel great about that position, but, you know, I was listening to Unsportsmanlike Conduct the other day, and, and Steve Sippel was was filling in for, for Josh Peterson. He was with John Bishop. And Sipp was really hammering home a point that was eye-opening to me. Because I've I talked about this, elements of this point, but the way sometimes it takes even someone else saying it for you to be like, yeah, yeah, that does make sense. Sip was, was pointing out that he thinks Adrian Martinez suffers big time from a beyond subpar supporting cast of weapons. And he's got a point. Like if if you stop for a second, is Martinez the issue, or is the issue that Nebraska is mind blowingly bad at running back, or mind blowingly below average at wide receiver? Let me let me frame it another way. When when you look at Martinez, Adrian Martinez, and compare and compare it to whatever standard you have for what a good quarterback is. Right? So you have those two images in your mind. How does that compare? How does that comparison look when you do the same thing at running back and at wide receiver? Like when you look at Nebraska's running backs and then conjure up the image or the standard of what you believe a good running back looks like. Is that closer than Martinez and the quarterback or not? 
Like for me, I think Martinez is way closer to being a really good quarterback than any of Nebraska's running backs are to being a really good running back. Same goes for wide receiver. I mean, who on this roster at that running back spot even sniffs Rex Burkhead or Amir Abdullah or even like Roy Hallou? Who even sniffs those guys? Not to mention, you know, LP, Amon Green, Mike Rozier. I mean, come on. Marvin Scott, Ronald Tompkins, Ramir Johnson. I mean, even Mills. Like, listen, I know he had a good game against Rutgers, but it's like, come on, man. Come on, man. I think you could make a case that a big-time, legit running back would change everything. I think it would make Martinez look look better. It would make the offense look different. Because it, it is just amazing when you think about the first couple of years how Nebraska has has seemingly whiffed on every running back and wide receiver recruit except for Wondell Robinson. I mean, we're talking missed on every of them, all of them. Because this is, and I don't feel like this is hyperbole, this is as bad as the running back wide receiver combination has ever been at Nebraska. Like I'm talking, you got to go back to like pre-Devaney. Again, until that last game at Rutgers, Nebraska hadn't had a running back rush for 100 yards all season. And, And Nebraska's their longest run from scrimmage from a running back, I believe, was 17 yards, 16 or 17 yards. For sure wasn't over 19 or 20. I mean, let that sink in. So I think beyond special teams and quarterback play, I could argue that the the biggest issue is the weapons. In particular, a real legit good running back. And I, I get there's no doubt the sloppiness and and uh, you know mental mistakes and penalties all stuff is a big problem. There's no question about that. But I think with better skill, you can overcome more of the sloppiness. I mean, a, a false start on first down shouldn't be a drive death sentence, but this season it was. If Nebraska had to start it, you know, behind the sticks, first and fifteen or something like that, or what, like it was just you might as well send the punt team out there. But when your skill guard, when your skill guys are are as subpar as Nebraska's are, like that, that can be how it goes. So there you go with that. Husker Power ninety two on Twitter says, "What's your theory on a good shooter getting out of a slump? Just keep shooting. Don't talk about it. Animal sacrifice, etc." This is directed at Lat Mayan's current predicament. Um. Well, first of all, I'm not a huge believer in talking a ton about it. I'm not a big be- I'm not a huge believer in that. Like the best shooters are almost absent of thought when they're out there doing their thing. Like I think of some of the best shooting performances I had, I was just out there like on autopilot. You, you what's weird is you got to of course, you got to think to be good, but you can't overthink either. So I don't I, I don't love sliding your entire shot under a microscope and having a massive discussion therapy session about it. Now you got you can't just like bury your head in the sand, but I, I don't love having like you know going on the Oprah Winfrey show and uh, you know talking about the shot for an hour. So that's number one. But the second thing you, you got to look at 
You got to look at the shooter and examine his shots. What type of shots is he getting? And then there is an element of form you got to look at. Is there some glaring thing? Like one of the first things to look at with if a shooter's in a slump, I'd be like, okay, is he taking shitty shots? Better shot selection leads to a higher percentage. That could solve a lot of things. Or going and getting easier shots to get your rhythm and confidence going is a good place to go as well. That was always my, probably my number one remedy was that. Whenever I ever felt like I hit a skid and my shot didn't feel right or I wasn't shooting great, I always felt like getting a layup or getting an easy basket helped me a ton. I know that doesn't make sense, but it does if you're a hooper. Like, go get a layup. Go run the floor hard and transition. Get out to a two-on-one. Get a layup. Trust me, you're going to feel better about yourself. But there is a part, I'm not going to be naive to the form element. Like, is there an obvious issue with his mechanics? Like, that's something you got to look at. Like, bad balance, bad feet, whatever. I, I think, usually I think from a form, form standpoint for shooters, it starts it starts with the beginning and the end of the shot. Again, I can only speak from my perspective. For me, when I missed shots, my feet were bad and I wasn't holding my release. Focus on those two things. Balance and then overdue holding your follow through. Like, I was kind of notorious for holding it maybe a little too long. Some people probably thought I was, like, too cocky with holding it up there. But that was sometimes my shot thought. Like, shoot it and leave it up there. Leave it up there. With Lap Mayen, though, specifically, like, I mean, his shot selection seems fine. There isn't anything glaring with his, his release. Like, he just doesn't look confident to me. And what's always scary for a shooter is when when you start missing left and right. You know what I mean? Like, usually, like, you watch Kyle Korver, you watch Doug McDermott, you watch Steph Curry, you watch Clay Thompson, you watch Ray Allen. They usually miss, they you they miss short or long. They don't miss left or right. Lap man's kind of missing left and right. That's usually like, uh-oh. Like, when I think of Ethan Rogge's entire career, I can't think of a single time he missed... All, like was was he was missed it left missed it right. The other thing I recommend for for some people is like finding some old game film where he shot it great and watching it. I'm a big believer in in seeing. I think like visually seeing something is good. If I can see myself, you know, stroking threes left and right, I can gain confidence from that. And then maybe even you can pick up something from what your shot looked like. Just a little reminder to your subconscious, like, hey man, you can you you can shoot it, man. You're a good shooter. And then there's obviously, yeah, you got to get in and early and shoot, right? Like, certainly helps to get some work in. Because oftentimes, preparation equals confidence. Like, for me, after every practice at Creighton, it was me and, and Nate Funk, my junior year, or me or, and Booker Woodfox, my senior year, we would, at second practice went in, we'd immediately get together and we would get up 50 to 100 threes. Rebounding for each other. And to be honest, you know, when we would do that, sure, I was working on my form and all that, yes. But it was just as impactful for my mentality and my confidence. When you put in that extra work, it helps. So there you go. There you go. Uh, Bill has a few uh, questions on Twitter. First one, he said, the biggest thing you learned about yourself professionally during a challenging 2020. Good question. Um, And he put professionally, so not personally. Um. well, first of all, with the podcast, I, I've, I've, the podcast is heaven sent for 
something like a pandemic when sports gets disjointed because you know a podcast you you don't have to adhere to any sort of structure you can do whatever you want with it right like it's a blank canvas every time and you can talk about what you want you can do with it what you want so in some ways the the podcast format was enormous for me professionally where you know Bo Rude and I could do a a recap for the last dance and smoke stogies or something like that like we could do different things like that we could fire up old husker classic games do husker classic recaps and watch those and do that we could do that so one of the things i learned was how professionally just how how nice the podcast format and platform is when things can get disjointed because you can do with it what you want but the other thing I would say, you know, again, he said professionally and not personally, but I'd say those two are more connected for me than I realized. I think the thing I learned, I wouldn't say I learned it, it just drove it home more for me, was how much I truly love calling college basketball games on TV. I mean, in all reality, the ultimate sign of how much you love something is like, how do you feel if that's taken away from you? You know, like, how do you feel if that's taken away from you? There, I'm sure we've all found out there are certain things over the course of this pandemic like, eh, I don't really miss that that much. Or eh, I realize that's not a big deal. Like I used to always be one of those people, and this sounds really dorky, but I used to really love going to the grocery store. I would always tell my wife, like, I got it, I got it. Give me the list and I'll go do it. Like I loved the whole process of having the list and getting the shopping cart and walking up and down the aisle and finding the thing, like some about it. Like I liked it. Apparently I'm a dork and I'm a, but like, I liked it. And all of a sudden COVID hits and you don't want to go in places, you know, instead like all of a sudden I'm like high V aisles online. I can just, you know, we order online. I pull up, they put it in my trunk and I leave like, yeah, I like that more. I thought I liked going to the grocery store. Well, I don't have to be, I don't have to go to the grocery store. But that's the thing you, you I, I realized how much I truly love Colin College basketball games on TV and how much my identity and to a certain degree professional purpose are tied to it. Just the threat of losing this college basketball season and not being able to call games on TV really put me in a bad place mentally. A bad place mentally. I was, I'm sure, I was probably no fun to be around when we were working towards a season and there was, oh, is the season going to, is it going to be canceled? What's it going to look like? All this stuff. Like, I was in a bad place. And and sure, there is a financial element that is real for me, but honestly, it's, it's just as much mental and personal as well. I can't begin to tell you how much better I felt in my own head the second I started calling games again on TV. It was like, I was like, oh, I feel so much better. Again, I don't know if you guys listen to have anything like this for you, but calling games on TV, it gives me purpose and it makes me feel kind of complete. Like I love, and you guys may be like, Jesus, Nick, you just talking about calling Xavier and Bradley that really like, yeah, it, it means a lot to me. <laughs> it means a ton to me. I love the whole process of it. The roster, the film study, the game plans, like all of it. I've told people this. And I'll, I'll, I'll tell you, like, if I hit the lottery tomorrow and I won $300 million, like, boom, 300 mil, I'd still want to call games for Fox. I'd still want to do everything I'm currently doing for college basketball TV. Now, I might take a little private jet to these, some of these places, but I'm, I'm going to be there, right? 
So I knew that, but I think 2020 and this pandemic and all this stuff kind of drove that home even more. This pandemic taught, you know, again, like I said, taught everyone what, you know, what makes them feel complete and happy and what is really important to them and what is it, right? And for me, again, he talked professionally. For me, college basketball TV work means, it just means a ton, man. Means a ton. Uh, Next question is from Bill. Bill says, uh, Creighton's ceiling when uh, Marcus Zagorowski and Mitch Ballock return to form offensively. Well, first of all, isn't it crazy we're saying that, right? Like, like, imagine someone reading that question to you like before the season started. Tell you what, once Marcus Zagorowski and Mitch Ballock get going, look out. You'd be like, what? Aren't those like the two best players on the team? That's crazy. Because arguably the biggest issue, issue relatively speaking, has been Marcus Zagorowski in particular and him not fully regaining his flow back. Because let's be honest, you watch him play, he's not quite gotten it all back yet. He he hasn't. He's not he's not separating from people and getting space. He's not shooting it as well. And and what's what's hard is just because you are are one hundred percent medically cleared to play doesn't mean you are one hundred percent back as a player. There's a big difference between those two things. I know for me. The only major injury I had in my athletic career was I I had some nagging stuff, but the only major one I had was I dislocated my shoulder and I had to have surgery on my left shoulder in September of my senior year of, of high school. Dislocated in a football game. I then had to miss the first 10 games of the basketball season and returned back in like mid-January. January 10th, I want to say, was my first game back. And for me, I'd say it took almost a full year to get my game back like get everything my flow my confidence my timing 100% back and that was just a shoulder I think a knee is way harder to come back from but the point is sometimes it takes a while and I think that's happening with Marcus Zagorowski and some of this is shame on us for thinking Marcus Zagorowski is like the Terminator and is just gonna you know bounce back and be like here we go but he's still working his way back and getting all of his game back and his timing. And I'm confident he'll get it back. And when he does, to answer the question, I'm not moving off my initial projection. Uh, I, I had Creighton preseason ranked fifth in the country. I think they're I think they're a preseason – or I think they're a top 10 team. I think as long as Marcus Zagorowski gets his groove back, they're, they're a top 10 team. I think – I think as long as he gets his groove back and plays like the guy we saw at the end of last season, if slash when that happens, I think Creighton's good enough to 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 potentially beat down the door of of you know elite eight, final four. I really believe that. They check a lot of the boxes. You know, they're experienced, they're deep. Kalkbrenner gives them a legit seven footer at the rim that helps offensively and defensively. Damian Jefferson and Christian Bishop are are took another massive step forward. Denzel Mahoney's playing great. Settling into trying to be a defensive stopper, he's scoring at a high clip. I think they're they're elite eight, final four, good. I really do. But again, Marcus needs to get his groove back for that to happen. Dean on Twitter says, "You do several wine pods. Have you co- ever considered doing a harder alcohol? I think a whiskey pod, especially as a game recap, would be entertaining." Well, 
Uh, you know, what's weird, Bo and I did a whiskey pod after the finale of The Last Dance for that Michael Jordan documentary in April or May. I can't remember when it was. We also smoked cigars out of respect for, uh, for MJ. And it was great. But a full-fledged whiskey pod, I'll have to, I got to talk to Bo about that. We'll have to do it. That could get a little sloppy. Let's, let's be honest. That could get a little. Wine lends itself to sophistication, right? You know, we're going to stay sophisticated. Whiskey, whiskey, you might get a little sloppy, get a little slurred speech, but I, I get the sense that's what everybody wants. <laughs> that's, that's what everybody wants from, from me and Bo is to get a, little, uh, get a little toasted, right? But we'll get it done, Dean. Don't worry. We'll get it done. We'll, we'll get some whiskey. We'll pour a few. We'll have a little fun. Don't worry about it. Few more, we'll get out of here because, oh gosh, we're almost uh, almost an hour into this thing. This has been great. Mike on Twitter, interesting question here. He says, uh, "How much responsibility do you put on Husker fans for the current state of Husker football? I.e., dissatisfaction with consistent nine-win coaches like Solich and Pellini." Um, you know, interesting question and discussion. Like, first of all, I think the current state of affairs for Nebraska football all started with the firing of Frank Solich, and we just went over that. That was more about Steve Peterson than the fans. But I also I get I get Mike, I get your point. Because at the end of the day, any way you want to slice it, you can say Nebraska had two different coaches winning nine games a year, and they were upset with both, and both got fired. Which I mean, when you kind of say that out loud, you kind of feel like we are spoiled brats, right? That kind of like to say it out loud is like, geez, man. But what's hard is I was right there with everyone with Pelini. I'm not gonna lie. I can't. I'm not gonna front. I was on the radio every day. I thought there needed to be a change. Uh, I, I was right there. But also, let's not have revisionist history that everything was peachy and great with Bo Pelini here, right? Like things had gotten really toxic with Bo Pelini because Bo Pelini is kind of just a drama toxic filled person. And yes, were they winning nine games a year? Yeah, they were. But the losses were in spectacular blowout, embarrassing fashion. I mean, beyond belief blowout. So you got to remember the whole scope, right? It's like that, maybe that, like that high school girlfriend you had or one of your old girlfriends. You can't sit there and just go like, ah, oh, yeah, you know, Tiffany, she was cool. You know, we had some good times. Like, nah, Tiffany, like, let's think about all the times Tiffany and you fought. And Tiffany was a pain in the you-know-what, right? Like, like when you reflect on something, you can't just only isolate the good and be like, ah, that was great. Yeah, really? <laughs> really? So you got to remember the whole scope. But with the fans, it's weird because it's, it's hard to blame the fans for the, for the current state of the program when it's kind of the fans are the only thing that have kept this program alive over the past 20 years. When the fact that you can have a 20-year conference title drought and have multiple losing seasons and, frankly, some bad football being played and it's still a sellout every Saturday at Memorial Stadium for when the spring game comes, there's still 75,000, 80,000 people for a spring game. It's just amazing. But there is no doubt that there is a, there's a fishbowl and an element of pressure and, and, with, and with the fans that that at times can maybe be too much. Sometimes I think it's like, this feels like too much. Like I've said, especially being out of the daily talk radio industry, I can, we put way too much emphasis on every single thing Scott Frost says at a press conference. Like sometimes I'm like, wow, like I'll listen to 
radio shows that'll spend the entire day dissecting like one sentence from a post-game press conference. It's like, guys, like that's, we're getting way into the weeds here. The problem is they like, they don't have a good running back. They can't, they have 10 penalties. It's not like one little thing he said. So sometimes I think we overdo it with stuff like that. But how, I mean, because the problem is like how many, with but with the fans, like how many programs, college football programs can have a have a, a radio program like Big Red Overreaction where, I mean, I've hosted it and I've listened to it. I still listen to it where after every game, it is full phone lines for three or four hours and it is intense call after intense call after intense call. When you're talking about a team that's like, you know, got a losing record, it's amazing. There aren't too many college football programs that can have that. But it is amazing how much coverage there is, right? Which is, I mean, obviously, that's a direct reflection for the audience's thirst for it, right? Like, I was texting Severe about this. Like, Severe did a media bracket about a year ago, like of all just like an NCAA tournament type bracket for all the different media members. And he listed, and they, I want to say he listed 32 radio guys. And you know, there were, by the way, there were enough media members, sports media members, to fill 64 slots. Think about that. We're not in New York or Philly or Boston or LA or Dallas. I mean, we're in Omaha and Lincoln, Nebraska. There are about 17 radio shows that are, I mean, let's be honest all dedicated to Nebraska football. And then when you think about all the writers for the for the papers and the websites, I mean, it's incredible. Think about podcasts like this one. It's, it's incredible. And it's all for Husker football. So the fishbowl and the coverage is crazy. But I, I, I refuse to, I don't want to go down the path of ever thinking that that's a bad thing. Yeah, can there be elements of something that of that that are bad? Sure. But man, most most programs would die to have people care. They would die to have people care enough to sit on hold for bigger reaction for an hour just to get in one comment after a. You know, they would die. But uh, it can be tough to navigate. It can be tough to navigate for for the people that are within that program. Overall, though, I just, I'm just i not going to sit here and paint the fans like they're the ones to blame. I mean, come on, right? Like, I suppose on some level they have a hand in it because they help create the climate around here, but they also are an incredible fan base. Are we all maybe a little delusional? I guess, maybe. But that's the nature of being a fan. And there's nothing wrong with being demanding, as long as it's within reason, you know? Like, always kills me when people are like, oh, Husker fans need to know that 1995 isn't coming back. No one's fucking saying it's 1995. Okay, like no one thinks that kills me. Like, Husker fans need to wake up and it's not 97 anymore. No one thinks that. No one thinks Nebraska is winning a national championship next year and about to rip off like three and four years. No one's thinking that. Right. Like, come on. But like I said, the, let me tell you, the moment people stop caring is the moment Nebraska football is in big, big trouble. Big, big trouble. Logan, via email, says, uh, injuries aside, which Creighton team was the best you've ever seen? And if different, who had the best chance to go the furthest in the NCAA tournament? Good question. 
So for me, you know, I mean, I think you could pick one of Kyle's teams, maybe the team that that beat Florida in the NCAA tournament. But for me, the three best teams that I've seen are Doug McDermott's senior year team. I think that was 2013-2014. Uh, Maurice Watson's senior year, I believe that was 2016, if I'm not mistaken. And then last year's Creighton squad. And when you look at those three teams, obviously the best player on any of those teams was Doug. But I actually think that team is third on this list. I think size and athleticism and the guards are just vastly superior on Maurice Watson's team and then last year. And, man, it's hard. Like, it's tough because it this the season kind of came to a halt in the middle of the year. But that, when Maurice Watson was at full strength, that team was awesome. They were 17-1 and before he, when he tore his ACL. And that's starting five. I mean, listen to the starting five. Maurice Watson at the point, Marcus Foster at the two, Kyrie Thomas at the three, Cole Huff at the four, and Justin Patton at the five. Man, I mean, that's a great blend. Watson, great passer, great in the open floor. Marcus Foster, excellent wing scorer. Kyrie Thomas, lockdown defender. Cole Huff, a stretch four. And then Justin Patton was just a crazy, long, athletic, shot blocker, dunker at the five spot. That team is incredible. So I'm tempted to say that team, but the team last year would probably get my vote because they there was an it quality to that team where when they were rolling, it just was unlike anything I've seen from a Creighton team. Like when Doug's teams would get it rolling, it was a it was a barrage of threes. Like last year's team could do a little bit of, you know, they would get lob dunks, drives to the basket, mid-range, of course they would get threes, but they were more diverse. And I just, those three guards, Zegarowski, Balak, and Tyson Alexander, some badasses right there, man. I mean, some badass, hard-rocking dudes. I mean, they won the Big East. So I'm going to roll with last year's team, although I could argue, I could argue that, that Maurice Watson's team was maybe the best built for a long run in the NCAA tournament with how they were built if Watson would have stayed healthy. But I, I, I got to ride with... Uh, with, with last year's squad. Last one, and then we'll wrap this thing up, is from uh, Scott via email. And this is a question that I, I'm not going to be able to dive all the way into it because I think, you know, obviously some of this stuff's going to get discussed throughout the offseason for Nebraska. But, you know, he linked a story to uh, all the, you know, top college football programs in terms of revenue. And the, and the question is, with us, us being Nebraska in the question, having the 10th highest revenue just behind Alabama, is there an urgency to change anything with the program? Interesting question and an interesting angle to tie it with to the revenue element of this. But I don't, I don't think money or revenue generated should necessarily impact your decision making if you're Nebraska and, and how to make the program better. Like, if, if you're going to make changes, do it because it's what's best for the program, not just because you have funds to make a change, right? Like, I'll try to give you an example. We've all had a gift certificate somewhere, right? And let's say you have a gift certificate to Foot Locker. Just throwing that out there. And you go to Foot Locker, and you got this gift certificate, and you get what you really wanted to go there and get with this, with this gift certificate. But then you realize, okay, I still got 50 bucks on this gift certificate. What do we usually do? We kind of look around and we sometimes like feel this desire to get something because, well, shit, man, I got 50 bucks on this gift certificate. I might as well just... the logic is sound, right? Like, oh, I'm, I'm here. I'm going to get something. 
But when you're building a program, like changes or changes for the sake of changes or spending for the sake of spending, just like buying for the sake of buying, isn't necessarily the best move. Because I mean, you think back to that you know, to the gift certificate analogy. So you force buying a T-shirt at Foot Locker, and it end up never wearing it, and it collects dust, and you're like, why did I buy that? So you know, with revenue being tied to this, like it's gonna be it's gonna be fascinating offseason for Nebraska because it certainly feels like something needs to change, doesn't it? Like the whole whole idea of just keeping everything intact and quote unquote running it back with everything the same seems like not the best idea in the world. But at the same time, like I just said, I don't love change for the sake of change or change to satisfy those that want change or change because, well, we have to change well because we have to get a different result. Yeah, that I agree with that reason, but do you really believe whatever change you're making is going to give you a different result? Like if you don't really believe that that change is going to make a difference, why are you doing it? If you don't feel like that change is truly the right move, why are you doing it? But I've said this before. I said it in the final recap pod. Maybe the second to last one with Bo. The elephant in the room with all these the, the changes discussion is Scott Frost. Because the reality is a lot of the issues with the program are all things that Frost kind of resp- he's kind of responsible for. Right? Game management, uh, the offense, quarterbacks, putting points on the board, like how do you change that? Like Frost isn't going to fire himself. So it gets to where it's like, well, what are we really talking about then? Because I don't see anyone on the defensive side of the ball that is is on the chopping block. That side of the ball had a had a took a step forward. I mean, let's be the defense was one hundred percent good enough this year to have a pretty solid year. The defense wasn't the issue. But the question becomes, okay, what changes are there? Are we going to fire Ryan Held? Okay, I mean, I get it. The running backs have been not great, but you know, by all accounts, he's one of their top recruiters. You, you just, you just a year ago, you just made a change in offensive coordinator and wide receivers with Matt Lubick. You're not going to change that. Greg Austin at old offensive line. I don't, I don't feel like that's the answer. So what are we talking about? I think a lot of it comes down to play calling and special teams. Do do they make changes in those two areas? I'm I'm fine. You know, if, does Frost want to make a someone a full time special teams coordinator or coach? Like, I'm good with that. I don't know what that looks like. I don't know how they would reconfigure the staff or what. It, like, because the reality is, you know, whatever they're doing with special teams isn't working. The analyst thing that they did a year, obviously that didn't wasn't a success. So I'm good with the whole idea of like, hey, figure out some sort of change in special teams. Cool. I'm with that. But the other thing is, does Scott Frost give up play calling? There's a lot of people that you've got to get you got you gotta change play. He can't be the play caller anymore. For whatever reason, I don't I don't love this idea. And I'm try I really am trying to pinpoint what it is that I don't love about it. Because we're talking like that was his thing. Like that was like his what he was known for. 
Now, that's not to say, like, some of his play calling really makes me scratch my head. Right? Like, for example, the tight end inside reverse to Chris Hickman at the two-yard line at Rutgers when he hadn't really done anything all year and Dedrick Mills is rolling. Like, what are you doing? Or the first play of the Illinois game. What do you or that, that then the first play of the Minnesota game? What, what's going on with that? Or it, the one play, the play call at the goal line with Luke McCaffrey at Northwestern, where he, they run a play action and have Luke throw the ball into traffic and it gets batted up and interception, intercepted. Like, what's going on? What is that? So I get it. Like I can I can do this all day. Pick out little things here and there that I'm like I don't like that call. I don't like that call. But how much of the issues with play calling go back to the weapons? of what we talked about at the top of the pot. How much of the issues with play calling go back to the weapons? I mean, you tell me. What play looks good when you got a BB gun at running back and a water gun at wide receiver? You need a bazooka at both those positions. Hey, you know, p- play calling looked pretty good when he had Ozigbo and Stanley Morgan. Right? I didn't hear anybody. Everybody was like, look at these plays, boy. Woo. Play calling looked pretty good when he had McKenzie Milton and company in Central Florida. Play calling looked pretty good with when he had Marcus Mariota and, and company in Oregon. Like, I, I, I have a hard time feeling like Frost just woke up one day and was like, oh, oh God, I, I, I forgot how to call plays. I think Nebraska's system now, just like it was at Central Florida and Oregon, and really any system, but some more so than others, is heavily reliant on having dynamic players at the skill spots. And Nebraska doesn't have those guys. So it's a layered deal. But you know how your how your gut reacts to an idea or a thought just right away? You know what I mean? We all have that, like something, someone throws out something to you and you have that, just that gut, that Malcolm Gladwell blink like theory of just right in your gut, like of that gut reaction to it. Like, "Eh, I don't like that. Or, oh, I like that. For whatever reason, when someone says Scott Frost giving up play calling duties, my gut goes, no, I don't like that. I don't don't know about that. So I think in terms of changes, I think they need to look at the at personnel skill spots. They need to figure out the running back and wide receiver and maybe even the quarterback spot. Because the reality is, guys, when you're average at those three spots, I don't care who you have at head coach, a coordinator, a position coach, you're going to struggle. Like, yes, Tom Osborne's one of the best play callers of all time. You know what else he had? Fucking great players. Great players. Again, he, he unbelievable play caller. Had great players. So I think they need to change and figure that out as much as anything else. So I guess I'll, I'll, I'll leave it at that. Certainly need to look at the mental aspect of the program as well, but we'll save that for another day because Lord knows we have plenty of other days uh, as we enter into this long offseason. All right, man, hour and like 15 minutes. Woo. Boys, get a little parched here. Um, as always, thanks for all the questions. And thanks to everyone that supports the podcast. Uh, the listeners out there, you guys are awesome. The the feedback, the support, sharing the pod, like 
it all it all makes a difference. The you know leave a leave a five star rating, leave a review, like all that stuff makes a difference. You guys are the best, and I really appreciate it. The sponsors out there, you guys are great. Um, you know, 2020 has been rough on everyone. I'm confident bright days are ahead of us, and I hope this podcast has provided some semblance of an escape or some moment of putting a smile on your face during this tough time. I sincerely hope that is the case. So, hey, cheers to uh, cheers to 2021. Happy New Year to everybody out there, and thanks for all the support. All right, my thanks to Pella. If you're thinking about a new window or a new door, now is the time. Check them out online on the web at PellaOmaha.com. That's PellaOmaha.com. And uh, my thanks to my good friends at Runza. Best fries on the planet. Great burgers. Cheese Runza. Delicious. The food is simply fantastic. Runza makes it all better. A Huda Media Production.